Section 5. The French Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The French Revolution by Hilaire Belloc. Section 5. Chapter 3. Characters of the Revolution. King Louis XVI. As might be expected, the character of Louis the Sixteenth has suffered more distortion at the hands of historians than has any other of the revolutionary figures, and this because he combined with that personal character of his a certain office to which were traditionally attached certain points of view and methods of action, which the historian takes for granted when he deals with the character of the man. As any one thinking of a judge of some standing upon the English bench cannot but believe that he is possessed of some learning or some gravity, etc. As any one hearing of a famous soldier cannot but believe that he has certain qualities associated with the business of soldiering. So historians tend to confuse the personality and the character of Louis the Sixteenth with that of his office. They either, by contrast, exaggerate his unkingly defects or by sympathy exaggerate his kingly opposition to reform. The student will do well to avoid this error and its source, and to think of Louis as of a man who had been casually introduced, almost without preparation, into the office which he held. In other words, the student will do well in his reading of the Revolution to consider Louis the Sixteenth simply as a man, and his character as a private character. For this last of the long, unbroken line of the Capetians possessed a character essentially individual. It was of a type which, no matter what accidents of fortune might have fallen upon its possessor, would have remained the same. Nor was ever a man possessed of high office, whom high office had less moulded. Men thus impervious to their environment are commonly so from two causes either from an intense and vivid personal initiative which may border upon madness, or from something thick and heavy in their moral accoutrement which defends against external action, the internal personal temperament. The latter was the case with Louis. He was very slow of thought, and very slow of decision. His physical movements were slow. The movement of his eyes was notably slow. He had a way of falling asleep under the effort of fatigue at the most incongruous moments. The things that amused him were of the largest and most superficial kind. Horseplay, now and then, a little touched with eccentricity and very plain but unexpected jokes. One may express him from one aspect by saying that he was one of those men whom you could never by any chance have hoped to convince of anything. The few things which he accepted, he accepted quite simply, and the process of reasoning in the mouth of any who approached him was always too rapid for him to follow. But it must not be imagined on this account that the moral integument so described was wrapped about a void. On the contrary, it enclosed a very definite character. Louis possessed a number of intimate convictions upon which he was not to be shaken. He was profoundly convinced of the existence and value of certain corporate tradition in the organism which he ruled. 
the French nation. He was a national. In this he differed from many a pedant, many a courtier, many an ecclesiastic, and many a woman about him, especially his wife. He was again possessed of all the elements of the Catholic faith. It was indeed a singular thing for a man of his position at such a time to hold intimately to religion, but Louis held to it. He confessed, he communicated, he attended Mass, he performed his ordinary devotions, not by way of tradition or political duty or state function to which religious performance was now reduced in the vast majority of his wealthy contemporaries, but as an individual for whom these things had a personal value. Had he, with precisely the same interior spirit, woken in his bed some morning to find himself a country squire and to discover that all his past kingship had been a dream of the night, he would have continued the practice of his religion as before. Now this is a sufficiently remarkable point for the country squire, the noble, the lawyer, the university professor of the generation immediately preceding the revolution, had, as a rule, no conception of the Catholic Church. With them the faith was dead, save in the case of a very few who made it, if one may say so without disrespect, a mania, and in their exaggerations were themselves the proofs of the depth of decay into which the Church of Gaul had fallen. Louis the Sixteenth was possessed, then, of religion. It appeared in many of his acts, in his hesitation to appoint not a few of his many atheist bishops of the time, in his real agony of responsibility upon the civil constitution of the clergy, and in nothing more than the peculiar sobriety and solid ritual whereby he prepared for a tragic, sudden, and ignominious death. It is next to be observed that though he was a man not yet in middle age, and though he was quite devoid of ardor in any form, he had from the first matured a great basis of courage. It is well to admit that this quality in him was connected with those slow processes of thought and action which hampered him, but it is not to be explained by them. No man yet has become brave through mere stupidity. It was not only the accidents of the revolution that provided this quality in him. His physical habits proved it long before. He was a resolute and capable rider of the horse. An aptitude in that exercise is impossible to the coward. Again, in those by-products of courage which are apparent, even where no physical danger threatens, he was conspicuous. He had no hesitation in facing a number of men, and he had an aptitude in a mechanical trade, a business by no means unconnected with virility. Now, in mentioning his virility, it is of prime importance for the student to remember though the matter can be touched upon but lightly, that Louis, in this department of physical life, suffered from a mechanical impediment which gravely distorted the first years of his marriage, which undoubtedly wounded his self-respect, and which was perhaps the only thing that caused him permanent anxiety. He was cured by medical aid in the summer of the year 1777, but he was already three years a king and seven years a husband before that relief came to him. The tragedy affected his whole life, and I repeat, must never be forgotten when one considers either him or Marie Antoinette in their intimate character and in their effect as actors in the great drama. 
For the rest, the character of Louis betrayed certain ineptitudes. The word ineptitude is far more accurate in this connection than the word weaknesses. Which ineptitudes were particularly fatal for the military office which he held and for the belligerent crisis which he had to meet? Few men are possessed of the eye, the subtle sympathy, the very rapid power of decision, and the comprehension of human contrasts and differences which build up the apt leader of an armed force, great or small. Most men are mediocre in the combination of these qualities. But Louis was quite exceptionally hopeless where they were concerned. He could never have seen the simplest position, nor have appreciated the military aspects of any character or of any body of men. He could ride, but he could not ride at the head of a column. He was not merely bad at this trade, he was null. Drafted as a private into a conscript army, he would never have been entrusted with the duties of a corporal. It would have been impossible as a sergeant, and possessed of commissioned rank, ridicule would have compelled him to take his discharge. This lack did not only or chiefly betray itself in his inability to meet personally the armed crisis of a revolution. It was not only or chiefly apparent in his complete breakdown during the assault upon the palace in the 10th of August. It was also, and much more, the disastrous cause of his inability to oversee or even to choose military advisers. Those who propose in the early part of the revolution to check the mob in Paris are excellent commanders, but Louis does not know it. Those who succeed each other at the Ministry of War or at the head of the armies during the active part of the revolution are various in the extreme, but they all seem one to him. Between a fop like Narbonne and a subtle, trained cavalryman like Dumouriez, Louis made no distinction. The military qualities of Lafayette, which were not to be despised, meant no more to him than does music, good or bad, to a deaf man. From the beginning to the end of the movement, the whole of the military problem escaped him. Another hole in his character, which was of prime importance at such a time, was his inability to grasp, in a clear vision, any general social problem. Maps he could well comprehend, and he could well retain statistics. But the landscape, as it were, of the revolution, his protuberant and lethargic eyes completely missed. He was quite unable to see where lay danger and where support, in what large masses such and such forces were grouped, and the directions in which they were advancing, or upon which they must retreat. In this matter he was, as will be seen in a moment, the very opposite of Mirabeau, and it was on account of this weakness, or rather this form of nullity, that all Mirabeau's vision was wasted upon Louis. Finally, he had no working comprehension of Europe. He did not even exaggerate the powers of the Allies in the later phases of the Revolution, when they were marching upon France. He did not either underestimate or overestimate the policy and naval force of Great Britain, the military resources of his own subjects, the probable sympathies of the Netherlands, anti-Austrian but Catholic, the decay of Spain, the division and impotence of the Italian peninsula. Louis saw nothing of all these things. One may conclude the picture, for the purposes of such a short study as this, 
by saying that only one coincidence could have led him through the labyrinth of the time with success. That coincidence would have been the presence at his side of a friend fully trusted from childhood, loved, as religious as himself, and yet possessing precisely those qualities which he himself lacked. Had Louis found a hand such a lieutenant, the qualities I have mentioned would have been a sort of keel and ballast which would have secured the monarchy, for he was not weak, he was not impulsive, he was not even foolish. He was only wretchedly alone in his incapacities. Certainly such a nature could trust and rely upon no one who was not of this intimate kind, and he possessed no such intimate, let alone an intimate who could command the qualities I have suggested. Being what he was, his character is among the half-dozen which determined the revolution to take the course which it did. The end of section 5